following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 1, 3-8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, There are some things that you know, that I know, that seem obvious to us, right? Things that we've learned long ago and sort of uh, file it away in the back of our brain, and we kind of go about our way, and those things get filed further and further back, and then we see something or we encounter something, and it sort of recalls what we knew and and just goes, oh, yeah. Like we have this, oh, yeah, I I knew that. I've heard this before. It's a little bit of a reminder um, that, that, that brings us back to this reality, uh, one of the things in my life that helps me remember is the plant that I have in my office. Um, I, I was given this plant a, a while back. I've had it. it it's this very lush, beautiful uh, plant. I don't even know what it's called, to be honest. But it's got broad leaves, deep green. Um, and, and for the last 18 months, it's been growing consistently where I should probably repot it. But I've enjoyed it. There's something about this plant that I walk in my office and it's like, oh, satisfying. And occasionally this Plant has to bear a uh, seven to ten day negligence span where it doesn't get the attention it deserves. Where I forget to water it, and, I, and this week was one of those weeks where I realized that I step into my office on Tuesday morning, and I see this plant that typically is sprouting up and lush and vibrant, now kind of collapsing in on itself. The leaves look very sad. Uh, some of them are starting to even turn brown, has me a little concerned. Um, And it's just a reminder here, as I had been studying in the book of Colossians here, getting into where we're at in our passage passage specifically. And the reminder was this, that dying things decay. That, That when there's decay happening, it's pointing to the future trajectory of death, right? And, and growing things are moving deeper and deeper into life. It's this evidence of vitality. Now, it's true in business that that if it's decaying, it's probably dying, right? You can't be in a competitive market and not have any growth. It's likely that your business will not be around for long. It's true with the human body, right? Up through your 20s, your body is growing and developing, right? It's alive, it's active, you're resilient, and and maybe for some of us it extends further into that. But at some point, decline starts to happen. Your knees start getting weak achy back, right? We start to become uh, riddled with some sort of disease or ailment. And what this decay points to is the reality is that, like, it's unavoidable, like, we're going to die, 
and just hate to break it to you. It's like a 100% success rate with death. You're going to die. And so we see that, that this decay points to death, that growth indicates life, and the same is true in the church. If a church isn't growing, then it's dying. And, and what is hard to watch is that sometimes it's a painful and slow decay. And so there's this urgency always for the church to have this mindfulness of, man, we desire growth. Because if you're not living, then you're dying. And it's especially true for us as a young church plant, right? We, we've talked about this in recent weeks where we are this church plant, this little seed that's been dropped in the soil of our culture, trusting that the sovereignty of God would bring forth a church that faithfully proclaims the message of the gospel for decades and centuries to come. To see us grow from this little sapling to a mature tree. And in this, there's a lot of, I don't know if you want to call it luxury, but there are benefits of seeing this kind of growth happen. Whereas a young church, we move into stability and maturity. The ability to weather the conflict and the storm that comes with church life and living life on life and doing relationships that are not just a superficial level, but really where we share our hearts and our lives with one another. It's an opportunity for us in growth to spread our branches, to offer even more shade to the sojourner who might come along our way. And so that's a desire that I have as the pastor of this church, and I hope that we all carry this desire to see God bring growth in our church. And today's passage is really going to unlock or show us what real gospel growth looks like, because the aim here is not to just grow for the sake of numbers, but to see true gospel growth happen. Now, this seems kind of obvious, right? Oh, gospel growth means, okay, we just grow in numbers. Right? There's, there's more people here on Sundays. There's more missional communities in the city. And, and yeah, it's, it's part, that's part of it. You know, it, it, it certainly is a factor of growth. And, and in, in a sense, it's easier said than done in, in a way. But, but real gospel growth is multifaceted. It's not just about the numbers going up and to the right. And so what we're going to do today is take a look at what I've broken down into the three facets and and really, we could unpack it, and so there's even more facets. But the three main facets, primary facets of gospel growth. And some areas are corporate, in a sense, where the church-wide growth happens, and some of them move into very personal and intimate and individual growth sphere. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are, here's an opportunity for us to learn what gospel growth looks like. So if you would, open your Bibles, your scripture journals, uh, with me, we're going to be taking a look here, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, if, if you were with us last week, we took a look at verses 3 through 5, and, and verses 6 through 8, what we're looking at today is basically a continuation of what we started. Um, in fact, it breaks off mid-sentence. We stopped last week, it kind of felt weird. We broke off mid-sentence, and so this thought is carrying out. And what happened in the previous verses, Paul was examining the Colossian church, he was taking a, a look at their life, a look at the way that their church life was functioning, and he was identifying, in fact, that the gospel had come to them and their lives had been revolutionized. That upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and understanding it, no longer were they the same people before they had heard and understand. That God had done a work to change them. No longer 
are they the same? They had an identity change. And this is all because of the gospel. Verse six is saying that the gospel had come to them. It's like the gospel, the, 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 the word of God had pursued them, had chased them out. They didn't go looking for this good news. They didn't set out on a journey for it. That God had actually come through his word and found them right where they were at. And so they heard the good news and responded to the good news. And now unfolding before them is this new life in Christ that Paul looks at and says, I can see that the gospel has made an impact because your lives have been changed. I can tell you're living the resurrection life now. And there's something so sweet about this when this happens. Jesus actually says that heaven rejoices when sinners come to faith. Like, Heaven is resounding now, probably all the time, because God is at work everywhere among the globe, and people are coming to faith all the time, and so heaven is just one big party, right? It's not this, like, lame thing where angels are floating around playing the harps. Like, heaven's a rager. Like, people are, like, the angels are pumped up about what God is doing because they are seeing that sinners have been made alive because of the work of Christ. And so this is really cool to see in Colossae where this is going on, where Paul's writing to this church, but then Paul goes on to tell them in verse six that Colossae isn't the only place where God has sent the gospel. All right, Colossae is not the only place where God is pursuing sinners. This is actually a worldwide phenomenon. We see this here where Paul says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. So this shows us the first facet of gospel growth, that the gospel spreads wide. Okay, and, and there's two things I want to pull out here as we look about the wide expanse of the gospel. And the first one is, is that it expands geographically. The gospel spreads across the world. Paul says the whole world is bearing fruit. Now, this is the first century here. And so Paul's world is actually uh, pretty limited as far as uh, geographically, right? There's like, there's the, the Jewish world and the Greek world, basically, in his, his worldview at this point. And what he's saying is that this, this Christianity, this gospel message hasn't just stayed for the Jews, but it's expanded to the Gentiles, and geographically it represents this as well, where it goes from Jerusalem and moves to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And it doesn't stop with Samaria or the Middle East. It keeps going that there's not a limit to one people group. There's not a limit to the culture or the geographical area. The gospel is meant to reach every tongue, tribe, and nation. And this is really an interesting and unique factor of Christianity, that that unlike other world religions, Christianity has spread. Now, other religions have spread, but not in the same um, potency that the Christian faith has had. Other world religions tend to stay localized to the place where they started. But Christianity has spread across the world like wildfire. There's no limit to the people group or, or anything like that or, or the language or anything like that. All of those barriers that tend to, uh, we run into, the gospel breaks those down and, and goes and seeks people out. 
And so it's so interesting that right now, the places that are most dense with its gospel um, population are over 10,000 miles from where Christianity began. Like the Bible Belt, some of the most dense area where Christianity is, over 9,000 miles away. And the gospel is still spreading like this. Now, we might look in our city and say, well, like, I, I don't know. The gospel growth seems kind of slow and steady, it seems like to me. Like this wildfire illustration, like it's not all Australia, right? Uh, and so we don't necessarily see that here, but the gospel is spreading in other places in the world in unprecedented, at an unprecedented rate. And so we can have confidence in, in the potency, in the reach of the gospel, because even though there are churches, even in our city that are closing down, that there are individual churches that might fail and have to close their doors, the capital C church, the church universal, will not fail, it will not fold, because Jesus promised Peter that the church will prevail. The gates of hell will not stand against the church. And so we see this global growth happening in places like South America, Brazil, in Africa, in Asia. Like these are places where the gospel is hitting and it starts a wildfire. And it's actually projected that by 2060, there will be more Christians in Africa by itself than the rest of the world. That's how fast it's moving in places like Africa, like Asia. And so it's easy for us to get caught up in our own little world. We look around like we're not, seeing that, we're not seeing that fast growth. We're not seeing people come to faith in the rate like we saw at uh, Pentecost where like 2,000, 5,000 people are being saved in one get-go. But there are other places where that's happening. Maybe, maybe not thousands. Maybe, I don't know. I'm not there. But there is an alarm. Not, it's an alarming rate for Satan. I know that. But it's a fast rate where people are coming to faith. And so it's easy for us to get caught up in our own little world and we can miss the big picture. And this is why John Stott's, Stott reminds us that we must be global Christians with a global vision because God is a global God. And that's one of the reasons that we at Sacred City Church partner with Fishers of Men Ministry who have deep roots planted in Kenya, like really spread throughout Kenya um, through child sponsorship and especially in the last five years Church planting, and that's really where we invest our efforts. Every, every month, we give a portion of the, of the tithes that come in to the church planting efforts in Kenya because we want to see more and more people come to faith. And Joshua Nagao, who's the, the leader, the pioneer, the visionary, uh, the apostle of Fishers of Men Ministry, man, he's got so many stories of how the gospel is penetrating barriers, places where the gospel has not gone before, people who have not heard. And, and like, it's a pretty dense mu Muslim community, and how the gospel is just converting people left and right as wells are dug and orphanage services are offered and schools and education is offered for these kids because the gospel is coming not just in, in power but in example and word and deed. And so we have this deep desire as a church to reach the unreached places. And, and I, I have a desire as as our church grows, that one day we would have the privilege of commending someone, of sending, commissioning that person to go out and be a missionary in some other place than this locale. It would be a great win for this church to, to have that global vision. However, mission is not 
just something that needs to happen over there, across seas, down on a different continent from us. Right? The gospel needs to do its work here as well. In fact, the missionary, uh, and, I, and I looked a long time to find this quote, but I couldn't find it, but I know it's a thing. Um, a, a missionary came back from Asia, I think, or Africa. He came back from someplace. He was, he was a, a Western white dude. Uh, he goes to this place on mission as a missionary, spends several years there, comes back home uh, on some sort of sabbatical and realizes, listen, we don't need to just send missionaries over in Asia or Africa or wherever this guy was at. We need to send missionaries here. Like at, at home, in my hometown, we need missionaries to be coming here because the reality was even though there was a gospel presence in a city, there were still a lot of people in that city that did not hear or understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that were still living in their sins and not living in the kingdom of, of God's marvelous light. And the same is true with Moline. This city has a gospel presence. Like, this is one of the things that's pretty neat about living in the Midwest is that it's really hard to, to miss a church. Like, there are a lot of churches. It's like on every corner, there's, there's a church. And even though there's a gospel presence, it doesn't mean the whole city has come to know Jesus yet. It doesn't mean that Moline is a Christian city and the same is true of Colossae as well, right? Just because the gospel has come, just because a church has been planted, doesn't mean everyone in the city knows who Jesus is yet. And so Paul is saying, just as the gospel has increased in all the world, it's bearing fruit abroad, it's doing also among you. And one of the things that's really important to, to know or to remember as we move through the New Testament letters, typically, when the author says you, most often than not, it's a, a plural you, not, not an individual you as far as me, Sam Schmidt. He's saying you, the church of Sacred City, or you as Christians in general. It's a plural Thing. And so he says that, that the gospel is increasing and bearing fruit as it does among you. And so he's looking at the church and saying, I've seen what's going on here. That you as a church are, are not holding or hoarding the gospel of good news that has come to you, but you are being a mouthpiece for God and proclaiming the goodness and graciousness of God to others in your city. That you're living on mission. That would be using language that we use here at Sacred City Church. That Paul looks in at the city and says, I've seen how your church is increasing and bearing fruit. It's because you're living on mission. And that's the second facet of gospel growth. That as the gospel is at work, as the gospel is doing what it does, it brings about church membership. It increases. More and more people within the city come to know who Jesus is. Now, this is why we at Sacred City call ourselves a gospel-centered missional church. We say the gospel is what centers us. It's our gravity point. It's all about Jesus. It's pulling us in together. But at the same time, the gospel sends us out on mission. We aren't called to be some holy huddle, not the frozen chosen, that God has called us. He's like a spirit, Tim Keller says this, he's like a spiritual tornado. He never calls us in without the intent of sending us back out. And so God spins us back out as his missionary, and that's how we live. 
That we are here as a church, not because we like the music, not because we need to socialize, not for building upkeep, not to put a show on on Sunday mornings. God is here so that his mission can be advanced. Listen to this, people. God's church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. Do you hear the difference? Like God didn't just call us to be the church and he's like, well, while you're here, why don't you make yourselves busy? No, God said, since the beginning of time, since Genesis chapter one, I've been trying to make myself known across the world as waters cover the seas. He's like, will you, will you, will you link arms with me? That's, that's what the invitation to salvation is. Not just to be saved, but will you be about what God is about? So I gotta ask us, church, are we serious are we, like, to the core of us, serious about mission? Are we broken over the lost people in our city? The people who do not yet know or understand? Because here's what I'm convicted of. I'm convinced that God has not yet called all of the family together yet. Like, we have estranged brothers and sisters who are walking the streets of Moline, Rock Island, Alito, Milan, wherever you are that God is planning to bring into this community. And he wants to use you to do it. And this is the joy of it all. As God brings about the work, brings about the growth, we get to echo the party of heaven. Like, the day that this church is lame, the day that nobody's raising their hands, the day that everybody's just mumbling words out of their mouth, the day that our confession becomes insincere and our profession is weak, man, I don't want to be here anymore. Because church should be a party. Like, if you know the gospel, whoo! I don't know, I... I and some days I feel like I'm the second worship leader up here. I can't see what's going on in the back of my head. But I'm just up here and I know, I know that this truth is more real than the fears and the insecurities and the struggles that I'm facing right now. How could I not respond with joy? How could I not throw my arms up? How could I not holler? How could I not give an amen? And this is what I want to say too. It's like the way you worship in our gathering is missional. Here's how, if, if we're worshiping wimpily, is that a word? It might be a word. If our worship is like, like if we get visitors coming in here, unbelievers step in the room, it's like, these people don't even care about what they're singing about. I can't even tell if they believe what they're singing about. So there's this like reality that when our hearts are engaged with the truths that are laid before us, in song, in liturgy, that's missional. Because it says, man, I emphatically agree with this. I might not be perfect, right? That's what our confession of sin's about. But this is what I believe. This is what I'm aspiring to. This is what I'm praying that God generates in my heart. And I know that what God has started, he will bring, bring to completion. That's why our worship is missional. That was free. I didn't have that in my notes. See, we want to echo the party of heaven. We want to celebrate new life. We want to celebrate baptisms. We want to celebrate when people have breakthroughs in their own lives. 
And so we want to see our church grow. We want to see membership here increase. And whether it's a broad mission or local mission, God uses ordinary means to get this news out. Right? There's no mass mailer that God sends out from heaven. There's no cosmic uh, public service announcement that rings from the heavens. God's people are the conduits of his good news. It's true of Paul and Epaphras, who is the one who is responsible for coming back and planting the church in Colossae. That's true of you and me here in Moline, Rock Island, wherever we find ourselves. That God has brought forth ordinary Christians, not superstars. We might say, okay, look at Paul, he's a superstar. Look what he's done. But look, Epaphras is kind of a no-name guy. He's mentioned offhandedly a couple times in the Bible. And there's so many more people who have done great things for the kingdom that are just sort of anonymous. And so God is using ordinary Christians to increase his gospel reach so that we can reach wide both here in our, in our uh, locale and abroad, globally. And so it's this reality that when we are saved, we receive a new identity. Part of our identity is the fact that we are a missionary. And if you're a Christian, it's what you are. Like Christian, you are a missionary. It's not something that you got to get good at and then you become. It's what you are. It's a question of if you're a good one or a bad one. Like are you a good missionary or are you a bad missionary? And the question when you get into this, like it's what's the standard? Now, just real briefly here, because we see this, I wish, I wish we could get into the way that Paul commends Epaphras with what he's done in the church. But one of the things that Paul commends Epaphras about is, is his faithfulness. That, that he is, in fact, a, a faithful minister of Christ on, it says in, in the ESV, it says, on your behalf, so speaking of the church, right, it is a benefit to the church that Epaphras came and preached the gospel and they all got saved, but it was also a benefit, if you look at other translations, to Paul and his missionary team because he was continuing the work that Paul had begun, reaching Gentile nations. And so what Paul looks in at, he's like, Here's what he marks as, like, the good missionary. One, Epaphras spoke the truth, that that the gospel, which is spoken of as, back in in verse uh, 3, said it is the word of truth. So Epaphras came back with truth. Now, a good missionary, here's the first mark, is one who speaks the truth. And it might be clunky, it might be awkward, but the truth is the truth. And the other factor is that Epaphras was faithful to share the truth when the, gospel, or when the opportunity arose. So really, that, those are the two marks. Like, are you a good missionary? Well, are you, do you know how to communicate the truth of the gospel? And if you're a Christian, you should know because you had to believe it in order to become a Christian. You have your own testimony to share. But the other thing is, are you faithful? When the Holy Spirit opens up these doors for you to step in, share the gospel, to open up your heart and your life. Now, I had a great opportunity to do that this week. It was so weird. Like, the doorbell rings very rarely throughout the week when I'm here in my study doing my work, but on, was it Wednesday, three times somebody came and rang the doorbell. I go down, 
ask him what I can help him with. And one of the times, and I get talking with somebody, and you know, we, we start talking, I make an invitation. Like, you want to come to a missional community? You want to come on Sunday and check this out and be part of what God is doing here? Even if it's just a placeholder. It's like I felt in that moment, I didn't want to do it. Like in my flesh, I didn't want to make an invitation. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to, I didn't want to pray. But the Spirit was prompting me to make that invitation. And whether or not it comes true, whether or not that other person responds in the ideal way, it doesn't matter. Were you communicating the truth and were you being faithful? That's what matters. And taking those opportunities. See, ultimately, it's up to God to bring the growth, but he wants to use us to achieve his mission. And the Holy Spirit is empowering us to do so. So when we feel inadequate in ourselves, where do we turn to? We rely on the Spirit. He'll give us the words. He'll give us what to say. So that's the first like, facet, the big facet of gospel growth is in the sense of we grow wide. Now, the other one where I really want to hunker in here is the, deep, the deeps, the depth of gospel growth. H.P. Charles Jr. says there may be times in the church where the church isn't growing numerically. Now, last year was an example for that within this church where we looked uh, in our year review. We were pretty much even from 2018 to 2019. He says there might be times when that happens in the church, but there should never be a time the church is not growing spiritually. See, this is the final faucet, facet, faucet, facet of gospel growth bunch of sinks in here. The final facet of gospel growth is that there's a continual deepening of our understanding of the gospel. Now, I'm speaking specifically to Christians. you are people who have already received, who have heard, understood, and believe the gospel. But there's this reality that no one begins life with the default understanding of the gospel. Like the reality is, is we have to be taught, we have to be introduced to who Jesus is and what he has done. And this is the reality for the Colossians that we see in verse six, that they had to learn, actually this is later down in, in verse, um, uh, verse seven, where he says, just as you learn from Epaphras. He says they had to learn. And so in verse six, they talk about hearing the truth of God's grace. And not just hearing, but understanding. And so those are the two pieces that we really have to identify as gospel growth uh, uh, segues or, or on-ramps to gospel growth personally. It is that, that we hear the truth and that we understand the truth. Now, the reality is that not everybody, you might hear the truth but not understand the truth. This was made evident throughout the gospels where Jesus is going through and he's preaching about the kingdom of heaven and he's doing so in parables. And, and parables are these short stories that, that make sense in themselves, but have this deeper meaning. They have some subtext to them. And so as Jesus was preaching and talking about the kingdom of God, he would use these parables, and he would say uh, to his disciples, like, you understand because God's opened your ears. He, he's, he's opened your mind to understand. And he talks about how the Pharisees and other people who are resistant, not yet ready to accept Jesus, that, that, their, that their eyes were closed, that they were seeing but not perceiving, that they were hearing but not understanding. And so the reality is that God must give understanding And God did that with the Colossian church. They came to know the gospel. He opened their eyes, their ears. But this knowing of the gospel, this understanding of the gospel is more than just an intellectual thing. Um, Beale, who's a guy I quoted last week, he says, knowing 
in this context refers not only to the cognitive, but also to the experiential aspect of human knowledge. I can know the stove is hot, but until I put my hand on there and experience it, I don't actually know in a full sense. Now, don't go stick your hand on a stove. But it's this reality that you, you have what you know in your head has to become real in your heart. That, that the truth that meets us will also accompany the grace that changes us. Now, here's the reality here. Uh, what truth is. Truth and what truth does. Truth grounds us in reality. And these are the two primary realities of, one, who God is, that he's holy, that he's just, that he's kind, forgiving, that he's eternal, he's a creator, right? All these things about God, these things that, are, that scripture teaches from cover to cover. And how we see God as this holy, beautiful God, and here I am, and I'm not like that. Like that, that I'm a, a sinner, that there's something vile and corrupt about me to the core. And because of this, that I'm incompatible with God because sin cannot, be, cannot exist in the presence of holiness. Right? That's, that's the truth of it. Right? God is here. There's a big chasm that separates us, and I'm over here. But the grace is that Jesus has come and he has bridged the gap between God and I, between God and the church. And when we experience this reality that he came and died on the cross, he didn't just die in a theoretical way, but really suffered for us on our behalf. And what he did there on the cross, that that we are forgiven, that we are accepted, that we are loved and we are sustained, that we are protected by God. That's that's the experiential piece of it. So I can know in my head all the components of the gospel, but until I experience that in my heart, then I do not completely understand the gospel. If we just have truth, it leaves us despondent and hopeless because it's like, my future seems incredibly dark. If just grace that, that forsakes the reality of truth, it's, it's just sentimental ignorance that everything is fine between me and God. And the reality is, no, like, there's a, there's a real issue standing in the way. But together, when we have truth and grace, they create a fertile soil for ongoing gospel growth and life transformation. The gospel, listen, the gospel isn't just about getting saved. It's not just about punching that ticket to get to heaven someday. The gospel is for life now. It's for helping us become more and more like Jesus in real time. This is why Paul prays in verse 9 that the church will be filled with knowledge of the wisdom of God and understanding. He's saying that I pray that you would go deep, that your growth, your roots would sink deep in your gospel understanding because even though you've come to faith and you understand the significance of Jesus dying for your sin, there's way more to it. Like I said last week, Tim Keller, the gospel isn't the ABCs to Christianity. The gospel's A through Zs, that you keep going down and down and down and further and further and further through your whole life. There's never a point where you, you become uh, uh, exempt from needing gospel growth.
Now, ultimately, I've said this already, but God is the one who brings the growth. Right? Unless, unless the Lord does build the house, the laborers are doing their thing in vain. But that doesn't mean we just sit back. Like, the laborers are still working. There's still an active piece of this in what, what our part is in growth. Now, think of it like this, like a plant. Okay, so the plant requires external sustenance to survive. It needs the sun. It needs water, right? Going back to my office plant. It needs the nutrients in the soil. It needs something outside of itself. Yet, when a plant is deprived of those things, it will actually do something, which I think is incredible, is the plant will position itself, it'll turn itself to become the most receptive to those things. So either the roots go down or the leaves will turn toward the sunlight. Isn't that crazy? Doesn't that teach you something about the spiritual life? That, that for me to grow means that I need to position myself in a way where I become the most open and receptive to what God has for me. Now, God has for us that he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. It's just a matter of positioning ourselves. So what's our part here? How do we do this? How do we position ourselves in a way that's going to open ourselves up to this growth? Now, some of it's really simple. Like some of it is just like basic foundational things. Like you think of it, read your Bible, pray. Like great personal disciplines. Like I, I'm 100% for those. But a couple of it's like show up on Sunday mornings. And I don't mean just like show up like 30 minutes through the service. Like show up on Sunday mornings. Be here to hear the whole context of the liturgy. Participate with what God's doing in the Sunday gathering. Show up to a missional community. Be, be part of a community who's gonna love you at your worst and, and love you to your best. Just be part, show up. It's, it's so easy because these are some of the places where God intends to nourish us the most. But what about the other 163 hours a week? Right? How... how how do we pursue growth then, right? Because not all day could be a Bible study. Not all day, well, we're told to pray without ceasing, but not all day, like literally can be praying all day long unless you move yourself into a monastery. Then you can. The key to this is as we go on our way, we remember the gospel and we preach it to ourselves. This is a key to gospel growth. Do you have the ability to preach the gospel to yourself? The reality is that, that in, in some sense, we're all functional unbelievers, right? Christian, there are things in your life that are believing that aren't true. And we professed our, or confessed our sins this morning, that, that reality that, that we are all functional unbelievers. And so there are things, there are lies that I'm believing that I'm saying are true that are not true, and so we need to address those lies with the truth of the gospel. This is the great thing about the word of truth. The word of truth debunks lies. And part of preaching the gospel to ourselves, as we present ourselves, the word of God, the, 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 the word of truth, does two things. It debunks these lies that we're believing in our heart, that we, that we have claimed as truth, kicks them out, it evicts them, 
and the word of God, the truth of God moves into our hearts. A better word comes to our heart. And I think the four lies, and this is part of our curriculum that we use in our missional communities, the four Gs. So if you're in the four Gs right now, this is a sweet spot. But, but we all have these lies, and they're pretty common, that we all come back to. This idea that i got to be in control, because if I'm not in control, then my life is going to fall apart. If I'm not stressing over every little detail and making sure things are lining up just right, then things aren't going to work out. And you know what happens when you live in that mentality? You become overwhelmed. You're stressed out. Your anxiety is through the roof because you're trying to do what only God can do. Right? And so the lie that you're believing is that I'm powerful enough, that I'm capable enough, that I can control my circumstances in a way that will allow for my flourishing. Now, here's the problem with that, is you can't do it. The, the lie that you believe about that just points out the futility of this whole worldview, that you aren't strong enough, that you aren't capable, that there's no way that even on your best day that you line up everything, that your life is going to pan out exactly the way you're going to. But here's the good news. That if you are in Christ, God is working everything for your good. That Christ is in heaven and he is working all things out in a way that lead to your flourishing. He's he's operating his power in a way that will lead to your dependence upon him. So you can say, listen, I'm not at the driver's seat. Jesus is. I'm not the one who's in heaven reigning and ruling right now. Jesus is. And you can give yourself to him and you know that he cares for you. So you never have to doubt, right? And in that moment, you start to doubt. Where, where do you have to do? Where do your eyes turn? You turn to the cross. Because in the moment where it seemed like humanity was most out of control, like literally killing God, that's where God demonstrates his power. That's where God shows, listen, this plan that I've had, it's actually going to work. And so trust me here. What about acceptance? Man, this is something that hits hard and hits home for me. Just trying to prove yourself like maybe it's somebody in particular you've got a boss or a spouse or a parent that you're just constantly trying to to appease and you've got this fear of man and so your whole identity rises and falls on what does this person think of me and then here's the worst part when you've got multiple people in that place that you put multiple people in that place that sort of dictates your value and worth. And so you, you get into this tug of war and they have opposing views. Where are you gonna find your identity now? Right? The fear of man drives you and so you feel insecure and unstable. Like who am I if I can't please this person or this person? And fear just limits us. It, it, it suppresses our humanity. The other piece is like, and I just want, I want to find pleasure in this life. I, I want to find something enjoyable, something that, that satisfies me to the deepest, right? And what happens is where do we start going? We start going to sports, you know, we go to sex or substances. We start drinking, start going to, to this particular activity that, that gives me something that validates me or something that satisfies some sort of longing that I have. But eventually what happens is that wears out. It, it, might, it might give you a little glimmer of what you want for a moment, but eventually that's going to run dry and you have to go back. And then think of it like addiction. You go back and the one hit isn't going to work this time, so you got to take two hits. And you become addicted. Maybe it is to a substance, maybe it's something else. 
And so you gotta keep going back and back and back till you find this. Jesus, when he speaks to the woman at the well, like that's what he's identifying. She's, she's going to other men. She's looking for that, that thing that will satisfy her. And he looks at her and says, I have what you're looking for. I have the living water. See, because nothing in this world is meant to satisfy. C.S. Lewis says that if I find myself with desires and longings that this world cannot satisfy, it means I was made for another world. And that, that's a reality. Like we were. And we were made for Jesus, and so nothing can satisfy but him. And then there's just this, this crushing feeling of, man, I've got to prove myself before God. I've got to work so hard that my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff. I can tip the scales into God's favor. But listen, that will never work. The sin that you own and will eventually accumulate, the, the, the pile is too high for you to, to shove under the rug. You can't do that in yourself. This is the futility of all these lies. It's the reality that, man, I really am weak. I'm never enough. I cannot please everyone. And so what do you do then? What, what do you do when the lie's been exposed, when you've seen the futility of a The gospel calls us to confess and repent, to identify this is the lie that I'm believing, and and turn from the lie to the truth. Now, it's not just an action. Like, I'm not just repenting um, for my drunkenness. I'm not just repenting for my gossip so that person will think of me better, which you need to repent for that, but I'm also repenting of the lie that I'm believing underneath. Because underneath every single Sin is a finger-wagging accusation toward God that you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you can't satisfy, you aren't glorious enough. And so it's in these times when we see what our sin actually is, a lie that leads to action, we must remember the gospel. Remember that sin is forgiven. Now I've got this quote here. And I know I'm going a little bit long, but this is so good, and I'm going to read through it fast. This is from Jerry Bridges in his book, The Discipline of Grace. He talks about preaching the gospel to yourself. He says, to preach the gospel to yourself, then, means that you are continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you, are, that you appropriate, again, by faith, the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that he is your pro, uh, propitiation, and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed to you. To preach the gospel to yourself means that you take at face value the precious words of Romans 4, 7 through 8. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. It means that you believe on the testimony of God that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that you believe that Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. It means that you believe he forgave you all your sins and now presents you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. 
Turning to the Old Testament, to preach the gospel to yourself means that you appropriate by faith the words of Isaiah 53. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It means that you dwell upon the promise that God has removed your transgression from you as far as the east is from the west, that he has blotted out your transgressions and remembers your sin no more. But it means you realize that all these wonderful promises of forgiveness are based upon the atoning death of Jesus Christ. It is the death of Christ through which he satisfied the justice of God and averted from us the wrath of God that is the basis of all of God's promises of forgiveness. We must be careful that in preaching the gospel to ourselves, we do not preach a gospel without a cross. We must be careful that we do not rely on the so-called unconditional love of God or what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls the cheap grace without realizing that his love can only flow to us as a result of Christ's atoning death. It's as Ephesians 3 talks about, that we may know the height, the breadth, the width, the depth of the love of God, which is demonstrated in Christ Jesus. And when you see that, when you understand that, when God makes that alive in your heart, then you receive not only the forgiveness of sins, You receive a better word that gives you real life now, a a real fighting faith, a life that fights sin, that prevents sin by pointing our lives toward God and living godly lives. So that way we can fight sin by saying, look, God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere. I don't have to look to porn. I don't have to look to substances. I don't have to look to my accolades in school. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. So I don't have to white-knuckle things and try to manipulate people. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to heap up my good deeds and try to to put on a song and dance for God to really embrace me and to accept me. I, I don't have to, here's the other, God is glorious, so I don't have to feel others. Because if God is the most glorious thing, if God has the opinion that matters most through all creation, I don't really care what other people think of me when God looks at me and says, this is my beloved child. And when you have this, when you have a faith that is working these things out, when you're able to preach the gospel to yourself, what happens is it produces this inner peace. And a lot of people come to church and say, I like church because it gives me this sense of inner peace. Right, that's... That's great, but that inner peace isn't isolated to this space, that it comes with us. As we preach the gospel to ourselves, this gospel comes with an inner peace. It gives us the ability to rest from our striving. It, It gives us the ability to find true satisfaction that we would never go to look and drink from another well again. It gives us a stability, right, that if God's opinion is what matters and it's steadfast, I don't have to be somebody who goes rising and falling with the opinions of other people. These are markers of true belief. And here's the thing. Like that, that's what gospel growth on the inner workings looks like. Taking the truth in, praying that God would drop what we know in our head down to our heart. And the reality is sometimes that, that transition, like it really, you know, maybe a foot and a half from head to heart, but sometimes that, that well, really, that distance is the furthest distance 
Sometimes it takes a long time to take what we know to work its way down our heart. This is why John Piper says that, that, that the thing that makes uh, the Christian life most challenging is what can be the sometimes slow and painful speed at which we are sanctified. And so if you find yourself discouraged, you look and you say, oh, there's not a lot of growth happening in my life. I feel stuck. And yet you're, you're, you're doing the things. You're doing what you can do to put yourself before the gospel. Man, keep fighting. Don't give up. Be faithful to God. I, one of the things that helps me a lot are these breath prayers. I've got things. I get triggered by a lot of different things. And so just being able to recall the gospel in a sentence that applies to my immediate context. So take the heart, hold fast to the gospel truths. Just trust that God is at work, that the work that he began, he will not leave incomplete. And just as the gospel breaks down cultural barriers, as we saw as it goes throughout the world, the gospel has power to break down the walls in our heart. Have hope. And for the new or long-time believers, I think this is probably true of everybody, whether Christian or non-Christian. You know, here's the thing. It's like we all desire what God wants to give us. We've just been going to the wrong places. And because of that, what's likely needed, or, or if that is the case, what's needed is that we need to repent. We need to turn from our sins, not just the things that we do, the actions we take, but, but the, the lies that are beneath it that cause us to live this suppressed life. Now, that might be confessing sins of spiritual laziness, right? that on a personal level, we have not pursued Jesus to the extent that he's pursued us. We have not positioned ourselves in a way to make ourselves most receptive to the grace that God has for us. What does that look like? Well, repentance isn't just like saying I'm sorry, but actually is taking action. It's turning and taking action into a different direction. Whoops, that's my bad. Now you're awake. It, it, it means that we take action. So, so what, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do this afternoon? What does repentance look like this afternoon if spiritual laziness is a reality in your life right now? Maybe pick up a Bible. If you're in a missional community, shoot somebody a text and ask for some accountability. Right, take those steps to position yourself in a way to make yourself most receptive to Jesus. Maybe that means setting an alarm clock for 8.30 so you get here at 10 o'clock next week. I don't know. What about for spiritual complacency? Not, not so much laziness. I can see how these things are, are linked, but it's like in the sense of that I'm okay with growing deep and I want to have that deep intimacy with Jesus, but I don't really have a desire to be a missionary. I don't have a desire to see how this stuff that Jesus is doing in my heart to wake, work itself out and transform the rest of my life, specifically as a missionary, so I can see the gospel not only grow deep in my life, but wide and reaching others. And maybe that means we don't have a desire for mission, or maybe we're not attempting, we're not, being, we're not speaking truth in those opportunities where God has opened up windows, or, or being faithful to speak 
And maybe that, that's out of a, a, a desire for comfort, right? Oh, it makes me uncomfortable to speak like that or makes me uneasy or insecure about what I'm going to say. It's like, really, the only way to repent of doing that is to turn the other way and do it. You know what I'm saying? And if it's clunky, it's clunky. Is it truthful? Are you being faithful to Jesus? Heaven rejoices, right? Because God can even use the most boring presentations of the gospel to bring somebody from death to life. See, this, this repentance is really the first sign that we're bearing fruit. Scripture says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This means, and Martin Luther backs this up, that the entirety of a Christian life is one of faith and repentance. That there's never a point where we're beyond this. And so just, no matter where you are, we need repentance. We need to turn from our sin and start living in a Godward direction. Because if we aren't growing, we're dying. And thankfully, God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. You realize that? Everything you need to live a, a, a vital and growing life is right at your fingertips. And the Lord's Supper proves that to us. That Jesus gives us life to the fullest by laying down his own life. That Jesus looks at the sins and complacency and he responds to that in a zeal and steadfastness that he would go to the cross and bear our sins. That his body would be broken, his blood would be shed, not ours. And, and as we take and eat, it, it's, like, it's like when I dump that glass of water back into my plant, life comes back. Resurrection happens. This meal is a resurrection meal. And it gives us life and growth. So let us come ready to feast. Let us come expecting God to do great things through ordinary people because his mission is moving forward and we get to be part of it. Father God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that the gospel is not just for getting to heaven, but you have, you have answers to our deepest longings and needs even in this very moment. God, and as we come to the table, would we find those needs met in Christ? that he would be good so we don't have to look elsewhere, that he would satisfy the depths of our soul, that we could taste and see that the Lord is good. Would he be great in being powerful as he reigns from heaven, knowing that we can trust him and have full confidence in how he orchestrates our lives? Would we be aware of his gloriousness, that whatever he says about us is true and we don't have to fear others, God, and we will be aware of his graciousness, that this is not something that we earned, this is not something that we worked for or achieved, it's because of his grace, his unmerited favor, that we have this meal that reminds us of our true identity of who we are in Christ, God. Would you bless us as we take this meal? Would you transform us as the gospel works both deep and wide, God, and would we see the fruits of our labor? Would we bear fruit in our own lives as individuals and as a church, God? We pray this earnestly in Jesus' name.